Welcome to Sarian Strategic Partners Podcast, a podcast focused on pre-transaction planning strategies and commentary for founders, entrepreneurs, and executives. Our team's mission is to help ensure that you obtain the maximum net value from your life's work. We work with you to develop pre-transaction planning strategies to help position you for personal financial success by identifying key tax, estate, and gifting issues prior to a sale or exit of your company. I'm your host, Greg Sarian, CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. So we're grateful for your taking a few minutes to watch and listen to our latest podcast. And today we're going to speak about a trend we've been observing despite this pandemic of the past year. A number of companies have gone public through IPOs and, and raising capital to commercialize and diversify their product line. And that's that brings about a whole set of new planning issues to consider if you're an executive of a company that has recently become public or going through the process of an IPO. So joining me today is uh, my partner and our team's director of financial planning, Ray Baraldi. Ray is an attorney and a certified financial planner. And today we're gonna discuss what are some of the really important considerations executives should be thinking about before, during, and after their company goes through an IPO. So Ray, thank you for uh, for taking a few minutes out of your day today. Thanks, Greg. So as you and I were talking earlier, Ray, when, when an executive is part of a, a private company that is going through a public company, or going to become a public company, they don't often realize the different forms of equity ownership or how their equity component could change from going private to public. So what are some, what are some of the differences? What are some of the things they should be thinking about before and after the IPO process? Yeah, so once it, a company goes public and, and goes through that, that IPO process, uh, executives usually have four different types of ownership that they might encounter or, or come to possess. And the first is owning common stock. It, it, sometimes you and I refer to that with our clients as just owning clean shares of the company. And, and that's the, the best type of equity ownership that you want. What it does is it confers voting rights um, as far as for directors on the board, um, board personnel, as well as major decisions with the management. But from a tax standpoint, I think which is even more important than that, uh, there's special capital gains tax treatment for when these shares are owned for more than a year and then they're dispossessed or sold. So common shares, common stock, that is the best that you can get. Doesn't get any better than that. There's no restrictions or time periods that need to be met for those to vest. You just own clean shares of the company, and, and that's number one. If you can get that right out of the gate, that's that's the number one prize. The next that's very, very common that we see a lot, which are called RSUs or restricted stock units, typically uh, they're more performance-based. Sometimes they can be performance-based on the individual or just revenue for the company broadly. They're, they're very much given to employees on the condition that the employee continues working at the company for a number of years and certain milestones within the company are met. So RSUs, they're great to get. You know, Anytime you can get additional compensation, you welcome it. But from a tax treatment standpoint, uh, they're not as 
advantageous, obviously, as common shares. Uh, they do get taxed uh, at your current rate when they vest and when you exercise them. So again, it's, it's a great thing to have. You want to get RSUs, but if you had your choice between the two, certainly that would RSUs would come in second place, I guess you would say, versus your common shares. The next would be incentive stock options. And, and those are in a way almost like a hybrid uh, between just regular clean shares, common stock, and the RSUs. Um, what, the, uh, what we call ISOs, uh, employees have the right to buy this stock at a discounted price. And when you have that price, so you, you are issued these incentive stock options, and let's say the stock is trading at $20, and, and they give you the option to purchase them at $7 or $10 a share. If you hold those for the required period of time, uh, the, any profits on those stock options are taxed at the preferred capital capital gains tax rates that you would see with common shares. So they, they are restrictive in the sense that there may be a vesting schedule and or there's a timing period for owning them and exercising them in order to get that benefit, that capital gain treatment benefit that you want. Um, they're similar to RSUs in that timing restriction, but they're from a tax standpoint, when they're exercised and held uh, for over a year, then they're treated like common stock uh, with capital gains tax rate. And then finally, non-qualified stock options are the last type of option uh, that you typically encounter when a company goes public and, and executives or uh, more higher-end employees are given these, these stock options. They're pretty much um, fairly similar to RSUs. Anytime you exercise them, they're going to be current income. So there's really no favorable tax treatment that you can get. Uh, and that's why they're called non-qualified stock options um, because there is, they do not qualify for special favorable tax treatment. Ultimately, you're, you're going to take them if you can get them. But if you had to order them, it, they would probably come in last place as far as uh, the types of stock or equity ownership that you could experience at your company. Ray, oftentimes executives are so excited when they hear their company's going to go public and, and they have these, these ideas of a great liquidity event and what, what that capital inflow will mean to them. But, but there are a number of constraints, right, that executives need to be thinking about to allow them to actually monetize or liquidate their stock. What exactly are some of the constraints? What are some of the really important issues executives to con should consider as they're planning on how this capital really becomes liquidity to them. That's a great point, Greg. I, I think a lot of times executives think of an IPO or, or even um, just the prospect of their options as a big cash windfall, especially as that price per share runs up to a level that they are more than happy with. And, and they see these um, dollar signs kind of flashing in their heads, but there are restrictions to them. And, and one of them is a lockup period, especially with an IPO. It's, executives cannot dispossess their shares at any point in time whenever they so choose. There's really the, sometimes these defined windows that a, an executive can sell their stock. And that, that window in time might not coincide with exactly the point when you want to be able to sell it because you feel that it's, a favorable, it's trading at a favorable price. What you see with these lockup periods, they can be as short as 90 days or as long as a year. One way to kind of work around those lockup periods is with 10B51 plans. So why the lockup period exists and why 10B51 plans exist is, is more for insider trading rules. So once you are an executive of a company, you're, you're privy to information that the general public is not. And uh, generally what the SEC does not want is that executives 
have information as far as, uh, hey, the, the stock might tank in the next 30 days due to some unfavorable litigation or, or something that's going on in the marketplace and executives are wholesale selling their stock uh, and kind of just leaving the general public in the lurch. So that's why these lockup periods exist, but also why these things called 10B51 plans exist as a benefit to the executives. Uh, so they're not kind of stuck either way. And how a 10B51 plan works uh, is it allows uh, the executive to sell a predetermined number of shares at a predetermined time. So company insiders can sell their stock in accordance with insider trading laws. And what they do at regular intervals, they will able be able to set the price, amount, and sale dates of the stock. So if if you basically you have a stock, it, it's trading at 20, you want it, you want it to sell at 40, you can set these price limits and also these timing limits that hey, if, if it hits $40 a share on December 5th, sell a thousand shares or sell. Uh, however many that you you choose at that point in time. And then if it works out that way in, in the marketplace, it will trigger and it will sell. And if not, uh, you'll still be holding them. So in some ways, it's really nice that you're able to set these quote unquote limit orders and be able to dispossess the stock at a price that you're you're hoping for. At other times, you know, maybe it, it creeps up to 38 or 39, you don't quite get to 40, and then it jumps back down to 20. And, and if you could have sold it, you know, with a market order, you would have done so. So they're not perfect, but they're a way to kind of work within those insider trading rules in a way that allows executives and, and high employees to be able to sell their company stock and not be completely stuck or locked up, you know, for an entire year. So as we're kind of talking about 10B51 plans and lockup periods and, and selling the stock being limited by insider trading rules, I think that the biggest thing on executives' minds is taxes. Right. Um, you know, you think, oh, I, I see these options and now they're trading at $100 a share and wow, I might get $500,000, I might get a million or more. But the reality is there's big tax implications and those that, that initial quick math that you do versus share price times your number of shares is really not what you're gonna receive. So what are some key ideas um, that executives should be thinking about when they're liquidating their shares uh, from a tax perspective, what should they be thinking about there? Great question, Ray. And, and what we always advise our clients is that the best tax planning is done well before the taxable event to control and mitigate those taxes. So the, one of the most powerful tax planning techniques before a company goes public is something called an 83B election. So if you have equity subject to a vesting schedule, the 83B election is a, is a form you file with the IRS that basically says you're in the IRS's eyes acquiring your shares, you're buying those shares. So if you join a company and, and you're allotted equity at a very low price, but you expect over the next 12 to 18 months, the path is to grow, commercialize, and go public, the 83B election allows you to acquire that in the IRS's eyes and you pay tax based on where the current price is so that all future appreciation is taxed as long-term capital gain. Because if you go through that IPO, and then in that nine-month lockup period when it expires, you begin selling shares, that would ordinarily then be subject to short-term capital gains. So 83B election is a great pre-planning tool. The other is really, as you noted, Ray, understanding the nature of your equity. So how the non-qualified option differs from the incentive stock option. And one of the things we use regularly with executives who have both is something called a tandem sale. 
where you exercise and sell some of your NSOs, pay the income tax, but you use that cash to buy and hold the ISO. Because as you mentioned, if you, if you hold the ISO, the incentive stock option, two years from grant date, one year from exercise, you convert ordinary income tax, which currently the maximum rate is 37%, to capital gain tax, which is 20%. And that's a really big, a really big savings. And lastly, if, if, we're, if you're already in a public company and you're in a 10B51 plan or your window's open and you're just going to be taking some chips off the table, look for ways to marry a commensurate tax deduction with the tax liability. One of the greatest tools we use with executives is something called a donor advised fund. It basically allows you to capture a charitable tax deduction when there's a spike in income. So you sell a bunch of shares, exercise a bunch of options, a jump in income, and you can fund a donor advised fund, even with securities and avoid capital gain taxes. You capture a charitable income tax deduction in the year of the funding, and yet you have the rest of your life to distribute it to charities that you care about that are qualified 501c3. So those are a few things, Ray, that, that our clients have really benefited from from a tax perspective. So estate planning and wealth transfer planning becomes more of an issue as wealth is created with an IPO, especially very meaningful wealth. What are some major issues that executives should be thinking about from an estate planning standpoint? No, you're right. It, it's often overlooked because many times the executives see this, these numbers on paper, and they're just that. Before the IPO, they're, it's the private equity, and, and they're expecting that it's worth something. But now when, it, when it's priced through a public offering, you know exactly what your shares are worth. So your net worth can increase dramatically if you have a meaningful amount of equity that goes through a public offering. So let's start with the basics. You want to make sure you have your four main estate planning documents in place. First is a will or a trust, which says who gets what if you pass away. The second is a power of attorney, which would give to somebody else, another loved one, someone you uh, trust, the ability to sign documents, make decisions on your behalf if you're incapacitated. The third's a living will, which is keep me alive. Uh, and the fourth, if you have young children, would be a guardianship, who would raise your children. So those are the basics that you wanna make sure are at the, the ground floor, the basic building block of any estate plan. Then beyond that, there are some advanced trust strategies. Um, there are things called grantor retained annuity trusts, spousal lifetime, spousal lifetime access trusts. These are great tools, Ray, you're familiar with them with your background, where if your equity is worth X today, and you think it's gonna be worth Y or Z in the next you know, two to three years, can move shares into the trust, and that's out of your estate for estate tax purposes, but you retain an income right to draw the income out of that to for a set period of time. So it's a way to kind of keep the fruit, but give away the tree. So those are two very appropriate estate planning strategies. And then another one that, that's really very basic, but, but powerful is when, when people go through an IPO and their, their wealth increases, many times they're supporting loved ones um, that they that they care about. And so if if you're helping financially a loved one who is over the age of 24, and I'll tell you why that's important in a moment, as opposed to selling stock and then writing them a check, once they reach age 24, they're out of what's called the kitty tax rules. So they're taxed at their own tax bracket. 
And if, if you as the executive are in a very high tax bracket and the recipient is in a bracket lower than you, there are some capital gain tax savings that can be realized by giving them shares, let them sell it. And if they're single making less than $80,000, married making less than $200,000, a very large portion of that gain may be, may be income tax-free. So those are a couple uh, on the estate planning side that are, that are really significant. Another thing that we see happen a lot with public company executives once, once it, their company goes through an IPO or even employees that, that do have stock options is they become wed to their, to their company stock. They're married to it and, and they're along for a roller coaster of a ride with that stock. And, and we've both seen it work out very well for, for clients and, and we've seen the other way um, where it doesn't work out too well. What should they be thinking about from a diversification standpoint after an IPO? It, it, it's really, it's, it's hard to put ourselves in their position, right? Because they're so close to it. And they oftentimes don't recognize, in our opinion, the dual risk that, that an executive has when your employer is also the same entity that represents a meaningful percentage of your net worth. So I think that's the first thing to really address is concentration risk. In our view, if, if, you're, if any security, but especially if your employer security or that of a former employer represents more than 20% of your liquid asset base, they're subject to, to concentration risk and that, you know, that one company's moves can have a dramatic impact on, on their financial well-being. So, so really what we recommend is have a very parallel investment strategy to your company equity. So if, you're, if your company is a, is a small cap biotech stock or mid-cap mid biotech stock, and, and you're, you're fortunate enough to begin to diversify some of those holdings, really look at very low to negative correlating assets that are different than your stocks. Maybe it's high quality dividend paying blue chip companies, or maybe it's insured Pennsylvania tax-free bonds, but creating an investment policy uh, that would allow you to understand what percentage of your liquidity is in your company stock, and then how do you design a satellite strategy around that to reduce the risk of that core holding. And the other thing we also recommend is, is really have a game plan, whether it's through a 10 b 51 plan or just a quarterly selling program. But we recommend that, that executives try to pare back at least 3 to 5% of their holdings a year, especially if they're getting refreshed with new equity. That way, there's a discipline to, to diversify and redeploy those assets elsewhere. Post-IPO, we found that an executive or an individual's financial situation has increased complexity. Why do you think it's important or, or how should they go about thinking, forming an advisory team? What, what would that look like? No, you're right. When, when, when their income increases through the exercising and selling of their company equity, and their asset base increases through the, the validity of these, value, these valued options and equity components that have a real price now, then we think it's really important that they get advice on, on really several levels. So the four, the four important uh, members of that team should be first, certified financial planner, certified exit planning advisor, somebody who's going to be a quarterback, someone like our group who's going to look holistically at the entirety of your situation from cash flow modeling to risk mitigation, the tax efficiency, and really understand where are the gaps that may exist in, in your overall situation, how to address them. The second is a CPA or certified public accountant. 
who's going to have expertise in executive compensation issues and really know these different nuances around stock options and restricted stock. The third is a, is a tax attorney or an estate planning attorney who's really up to speed on the types of trusts and gifting strategies that I referenced earlier as we think these rules may be changing um, dramatically over the next several years. And lastly, it's important to have a good insurance advisor uh, because risk mitigation, as your asset base increases, you want to make sure that things like life insurance and disability insurance uh, are covered in umbrella insurance. And if your certified financial planner is a fiduciary, as we are, and they sell no product, you want to make sure there's an insurance advisor who is able to provide those types of policies, uh, again, under the guidance of the certified financial planner that are appropriate to minimize those risks. So those are the four really important components of the team. Well, thank you all for, for again, taking a few minutes to, to listen to our perspectives on really important things executives should be considering before and after an IPO. Any questions on anything we've discussed, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd be happy to, to answer any questions relevant to your situation. Thank you. Seren Strategic Partners is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Sarian Strategic Partners and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Sarian Strategic Partners and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.